Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. So chapter 4 of the book of Acts, we're going to read verses 1 to 22. So let's read that together. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men who came uh, sorry, the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, sorry, in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that, the name, oh, sorry, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed healed, standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What should we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. An old man. (laughs) So, in Mark chapter 4, there's this uh, story you've all heard. If you're a Christian, and even if you're not, you may have heard it. It's where Jesus calms a storm. And one of the things I find fascinating about that story is that we are told that they were afraid in the storm, but that they were, quote, mega afraid. Mega in the Greek, meaning very afraid in the calm. That they're more afraid when the storm is gone than they are during it. And the reason is, well, one of the reasons is, is because they know they're standing now in the presence of a man who is greater than their greatest fear. And that isn't just an awe and a reverence. Sometimes as Christians we want to uh, make the word fear of the Lord sound very tame and very respectful because we don't want to think of God making you cower in fear. 
Well, we have to get over that because not only there is an awe, there is a reverence and a respect, but there's a word in Hebrew called pahad, and it is used mostly by Job. And it is a terror, it is a, it is a panic and a dread that sets in when you see God. And there is a real fear. And the reason they fear, the reason we ought to fear we're in the pres- when you're in the presence of a holy God is because he is holy, and you are not. Because you're in the presence of one who is utterly other, who is utterly above and greater, and it should terrify you. Because you- and you know what? When you stand in the presence of God, the reason the angels always have to subdue them and say, don't, don't worry, we're not going to kill you, is because there is a threat of that at all times when you're in the presence of God. There's always a, 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 a sense that you're in the presence of something that doesn't really want you there as you are. And that's a challenge. That's hard. But that is what is in this Hebrew. And you know, um, and, and in the Greek as well. And when you're in the presence of God, you're made aware of who he is and who you are. And this is something that happens immediately in the garden. The moment Adam and Eve fall, they're aware of the fact that they are no longer fit to be in God's presence. And that's why they hide themselves. That's why they try to cover themselves right away. And at that moment in Genesis, every time I read it, I'm reminded that at the fall, human life and human existence became an endless act of brand management. It becomes a a means of covering, controlling, and um, creating an image. You know God is out there. You know he can't look at you without wanting to kill you because you're sinful and he is perfect. And so what happens is you start using everything you can to separate, to create a veil between you and him. Everything starts with fig leaves or whatever it was, and then it goes on and it becomes your successes, your failures, your, your good looks, your youth, your money, your success, whatever it is. Every step of the way, we are building a facade, trying to separate ourselves from God because we know we, can't, we don't belong in his presence. And he, when, we get, when you meet God... He's always threatening to destroy the facade. He's always threatening to rip apart the lies that you're believing about how good-looking you are, about how young you are. By the way, you do get older. Um, just the way it works. Yeah, everything, he's ripping it apart. He wants to, you know, because standing naked before God is incredibly terrifying and vulnerable. And so, we are so committed, though, to our facades that we would rather die than give them up sometimes. There's this poet, he was a Christian, W.H. Auden, and he wrote a book um, called The Age of Anxiety, a bunch of poems, and in one of them he says this, we would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. And he's right. I deal with humans constantly who would rather stick to their manly facade that they were taught by their powerful men Right? This image of dad being firm, mean, and unbending, and never crying. They'd rather live and die that way than be vulnerable with their wives and their kids. We would rather live. Men, men, have you ever noticed that guys don't love going to the hospital? We would rather say, I'm going to be fine, I'm going to be fine. You'd rather die than go to the hospital sometimes. And that's just something small. What Scripture is telling us and what this story is showing us is exactly this problem we have, that we have a God that we are terrified of. And we're running from him constantly. And you're always finding an excuse. And the reason I bring this this passage, why it's so relevant, is we're seeing here, for the first time, the clash of the authorities and the church. They've clashed with Jesus, but now Jesus is gone. This is the first time here in the book of Acts that the, the religious authorities come to the church and oppose them. And 
When this happens, there's lots of ways you could preach this, guys. So many ways you could go. But what I see overwhelmingly here is how the opposition to the gospel comes out of fear. The fear that the leaders have, the fear, and it, it mirrors all the fears you and I have. The reason that even if you're a Christian, you don't commit all the way. Why you struggle to go to church all the time. Why you say, I'm going to give God my whole life, but not my sexuality. I'm still going to do what I want with my boyfriends and girlfriends. I'm still going to live a certain way. I'm still going to watch certain things. I'm still going to spend the money I want. There's always something. It seems to be. There's one room in the house that you keep locked from Jesus. And this passage shows us this entirely. It shows us that we have opposition. The opposition to the church, to the gospel comes because we perceive a threat. And because God is a threat. And he is a threat specifically to our position, to our identity, and to our entire world. So we're going to walk through those. As quickly as I can. First one, he is a threat to our position. So this chapter is carrying on from chapter 3. Nothing has changed. Jesus, or Peter and John heal the man in chapter 3, verse 1, at 3 p.m. Remember? 3 p.m., just before the, the prayers of the evening sacrifice. And then they spend the next two or three hours until it becomes evening um, evangelizing, sharing the gospel in the temple. And then here, chapter 4, happens at, at evening. Finally, with all the commotion happening in the temple and people being saved and, and crowds coming, the, the leaders decide we better get involved. So it's still the exact same day as the healing of the lame man, but now it's evening. And we know it's evening because they tell us it's evening and they can't confer uh, a tribunal to question these men, so they're going to hold them overnight and start in the morning. So this is all happening. And the group of people that assemble, not just for this initial meeting, but also the, the next day of the council, is, is like the who's who of religious authorities. The scribes and the priests would have been the day-to-day -day folks, the pastors, running the temple. The captain of the guard is the police force of the temple. His job was to make sure that everything was running smoothly in the temple. There's no disturbances, no issues. Um, the Sadducees are there. The Sadducees were this uh, group of wealthy landowners, wealthy family, uh, the elites, the aristocrats of Israel. And um, they were collaborationists. They liked Rome. They thought the simplest way to, to keep power and to have things run smoothly is just go along with Rome. So they were collaborationists. And they also theologically didn't like the resurrection. They didn't think there was any proof for it in the Old Testament. And so with that, they show up because they're the ruling group. And the next day, we have Annas and Caiaphas come, who are the two guys who presided at the execution of Jesus. So that probably wasn't a good sign. Peter sees them come in the room. He's like, oh, well, <laughs> a few weeks ago, they didn't like Jesus, so they're not going to like me. So all this group comes together. And what's interesting is the objection at first seems to be theological. They seem to come and say, we don't like this talk of the resurrection and of Jesus. That seems to be what's there. But, uh, but Luke tips a hand here and shows us what the real issue was, was not intellectual, but it was emotional. And as a man who has now spent a lot of time with skeptics and was one, I can tell you this. I have never in my life encountered somebody who had an intellectual problem with Christianity where that was the primary problem. Intellectual, we all have intellectual questions, sure, suffering, etc. How can three be one? All these questions. But they're not ever the primary, because underneath the intellectual question, because you could satisfy those questions, you could answer them. But ultimately, there's always something where they say, I still don't believe. And we know that's their issue here because of what they say. But let me, before I get there, let me use an example of a, a good atheist. Well, I say a good atheist. Meaning, at least he's honest. His name was Thomas Nagel. He's still alive. I think he's 86. He was a professor at, um, oh, everywhere. Columbia, Harvard, I think Yale. Brilliant guy. And not a Christian. 
And in his book called The Last Word, he, ad- he admits, he says, yes, I've got intellectual problems with Christianity and religion, but that's not the biggest issue. And here is where even this atheist, at least he's honest. Here's what he says. I'm talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true, and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. At least he's honest. You see, I've literally had conversations with people where I can answer the questions as best I can. They say, I get it. I still don't believe. Because the issue is never just intellectual. It's a facade. It's the front. It's the first line of defense, but it's not the issue. And we know the issue with the the Sadducees and these leaders is not theological primarily. Because Luke shows us. He says in verse 2, very simply, they were greatly annoyed. What causes them to come out of their office and deal with the commotion is they're annoyed. They're angry. Something's going on that's causing... In fact, that word annoyed is only used twice in the entire New Testament. Here and later in chapter 16, when Paul is being hounded by the demon-possessed woman, and she keeps bugging him, he's like, "Ah, you're killing me! He's just annoyed. And so their primary issue is not theological. They're annoyed. And when we look at why they're annoyed, you're going to see three positions they have are being threatened by what is being preached. Okay, The first one is a position of pride. There's something wonderful in the Greek, called the accusative tense. And the accusative is when you're accusing something. And at that part when it's saying they're annoyed in verse 2, it doesn't just say they're annoyed because they're teaching a certain thing. It says they're annoyed because they were teaching. And it's an accusative saying there's an emphasis on they. It's not specifically the message, it's the messenger. They have a problem with Peter and John. And when, and we know what this problem is because later, after they hear Peter speak, they, they say in the English they were unschooled, right? But the Greek is interesting. First he says, the first thing is, you're a grammatoi, which means unschooled, but it literally means illiterate. But it does mean unschooled, so they're not, they weren't trained professionally. They know that much. The second thing, they call them idiotai. What do you think that word means? They're idiotai, they're idiots. And that, of course, means common. Now, they're not just trying to insult them, but what it does betray is that these men, these leaders, have a problem with the speakers because there's an assumption that who who are they to be questioning us? They've got no schooling. They've never uh, been, they've had no education. And this is such a common problem. And it's not just educated people. I'll say this very frankly. We almost always, and I say that because I'm one of them, we almost always look down on people with less education. Let's be frank. We don't mean to. It comes out so naturally. That's how natural the sin is. And a guy named Rob Henderson, he's a, a psychologist and, again, another Yale scholar, I think, did, uh, he wrote an article I read once, and it was, he was trying to figure out, is it true that educated people look down on less educated people? Is it true? And they start looking at all these studies. And after a long article, here's what he concludes. So, affluent people care the most about status and believe they have little power are afraid of losing their jobs and reputation and have less favorable views of others. And the individuals most likely to express certain opinions in order to preserve or enhance their status are also those who already or are already on the upper rungs of the social ladder. It's, listen, the gospel says it, science has affirmed it. We look down on people. 
And if you don't, let's use some examples. I'll use a personal one, one we all know, and then a historical one, very quickly. Personal one. When Sarah and I decided to homeschool years ago, um, I know of at least one educational professional in the family who, who was offended. And they said, listen, we go to school for years to learn how to teach, and you're just going to start teaching your kids? What, were, what was happening there? We hold the, we're the ones taught and trained to teach your kids. You think you can just do it? You don't have any education to do this? I understand what the, maybe there was a better heart under it, but you see what's happening? I have the ability. There's only one way to teach your kids. That's it. Now let me go to us all. When COVID happened, don't you think, did you ever not, let me have one even say it, because I know you all did it. We all looked down on somebody for their views, didn't we? And if you happen to be really educated or you're in the health, health services uh, field, didn't you look down on those hicks who didn't understand anything about vaccines? Didn't you say, didn't you do it? Well, what do they know? They're reading these crazy websites and listening to these crazy YouTube channels, and I'm not saying they were right either. I'm simply pointing out something. There's a knee-jerk reaction. I know they don't. They don't know what they're talking about. It just happened. That's what we do. And historically, look at the Reformation. Didn't the Catholic Church say, Martin Luther is a German backwater bumpkin? What does, he have, what does this German fat monk have any business? And they say that literally. Read the documents. What business does he have telling the church what is right and wrong? And so we look down on people. We do. And so these guys are looking, and one of their issues is the position they have, the position of pride. We know they don't. How dare they? So the gospel is a threat to them because the gospel comes and very plainly says, fools are made wise by the gospel. And we don't like it because it levels the playing field. Where's my pride then? If I'm not smarter, if I'm not wiser than you, then where's my strength? So it's a threat to the position of pride. But it's also a threat to the position of honor. Uh, this is the simplest one. There, there's uh, attention. The leaders were the ones getting the phone calls. Well, not literally, but getting the calls, getting the questions, getting the requests, getting the attention. And so if there's another group, another set of people that their people are going to for advice and ideas and thoughts, then it's, it's pulling attention from us. And we see the right way to do this in Peter, because when Peter comes, uh, you notice the first thing last, in the last passage, what he says is, um, don't think that I did this on my power or my piety. It's not some holy. I'm not powerful. God did it. See, so when the gospel comes, the reason it threatens our honorable positions is not because it robs the Pharisees or the Sadducees or any of us of our honor. What it does, it tells you you never had it to begin with. And that's really a pain. That's really a smack. Because it says, you're not the honorable one. God alone is the honorable one. So it threatens our positions, of our assumptions of our pride and our honor. And then it, it threatens our comfort. Now these Sadducees in this group were in power primarily because they were good. They were in bed, quote-unquote, with, um, with Rome. They, did, they were friends with Rome. And as a result, they enjoyed this very comfortable lifestyle. And the thing about comfort is the longer we Christians and believers are in comfort, the easier it becomes to think and believe that we're in comfort because God likes us. That I'm doing well, you know, everything's going well in my life because I'm a pastor. I'm my, I've committed my life to the gospel. And we start to think that, and that, there's a problem there. Because God doesn't give you comfort. First of all, he never promises comfort, right? Second, if you're having a wonderful life, don't you dare think it's because of you. It's because of Christ. Because his grace, his mercy. And we see how the gospel demands our obedience and not our, our comfort. And 
This gospel threatens those leaders, and you know that it threatens their comfort? Because remember, if this is true, then the whole structure of the temple, all the policies, everything, the, the things that are going on at the temple, now threaten to, to remove them from positions of power, remove their comfort. And so in verses 16 and 17, you see their, how everything, how they think. It's, it's fascinating to see how quick it changes. What shall we do with these men, they ask? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. So they're saying, it's good, we know a good thing has been done. But in order that it may not spread any further. See, see what happens? Something good has been done, but we can't allow it to go any further. And the reason is this. When you benefit from the lie, the truth becomes the enemy. When you benefit from the position and you're trying to hold on to it, you're going to do everything you can. You, an enemy, the truth now becomes the enemy. You have to resist it somehow. Because if it's true, if God is really working through these men, if Jesus is the Messiah, then there's a sacrificial system. And what are we going to do? Because we're getting a cut of all those sacrifices. What's going to happen? And so when you benefit from the system and the lie, truth becomes the enemy. And what do you do? What do you do when, when something becomes... When, when truth is the enemy, what happens there? How do you discredit the truth? How do the, fair, the leaders do it? How do we do it in our culture today? You make the truth teller look stupid. This is politics, guys. You know why you destroy a, a political rival, their character? Because you don't want to deal with what they're saying, so you deal with them, because that idiot can't be saying the truth, can he? That way you can just bypass talking about truth. Just attack the truth teller. Much easier. Again, politics does it all the time. We do it all the time. In fact, if I was to get up here and quote somebody who was an ardent Christian, who printed thousands of wonderful books and faithful books, but then on his deathbed recanted and became an atheist, you would say, how dare you quote that man? Right? And the reason is, look at his character. Because he ended poorly, everything he did that was true before that God may have used through him is now rotten, can't be used. Is that true? I don't know. But you can debate that. But it's easier when we're an enemy of the truth, you attack the truth teller. And so we're seeing them do this. The positions of pride are, are challenged, the positions of honor, and then their comfort. And so they respond by doing everything they can to maintain those positions. That's what we do. But the gospel destroys all self-made positions and grants us a position of value and honor from God, not one that we make for ourselves. And so it's a threat. We don't want to lose that life and start a new one. But the second threat is the threat to our identity. And so it's interesting that when Peter is questioned by this uh, tribunal or council, whatever we'd like to call them, um, he doesn't really defend himself. In fact, you'll notice that happens throughout the, the book of Acts. He's not defending the gospel. Instead, what he says is, um, Jesus did the healing. He was killed by you. He was raised by God. And you've rejected him, but that's bad because he's the only name under heaven by which we may be saved. The only one. And so all he does, it's amazing, Peter just looks for opportunities to tell people the gospel over and over and over again. But when he does this, he threatens their identity. And this is what I mean by that. Every time we encounter as, as non-believers or even as Christians, as sinners, our, our tendency is to want to make Jesus something other than he is. And this is, if you have took my heresies class, you know, uh, every ancient, every heresy in the history of the church, every single one, has, asks only one of two questions. Who is Jesus and what has he done? Is he really God? Is he really man? Is he really all God? What's that nature there? Or the other question is, what has he done? Did he really die for you? Did he really say? 
All these things. So those two questions. And what we want to change him from, and you see it in this passage, is first one is we want to change him from Lord to learned. You want to take him from being Lord to being a teacher. Because it's a lot easier. Because if he's Lord, then what he says is a command and you must do it. But if he's a teacher, you can disagree. It's advice, right? And we see that, of course, all the time. And this is the challenge. If he's Lord, I am not my own. I owe him something. But if I am, but he's teacher, I remain my own. I am a free agent. And I see all these different, this buffet of beliefs. And I can put my cap wherever I want. I'm a free agent. Do whatever I want. But if he's Lord, that's a problem. And the Pharisees, what are they doing? Listen, they mean today still. The Jews today, Islam, many people will still say, Jesus is a teacher, a prophet, a rabbi, but he's not Lord. And this is a constant effort of the human heart, and Christians do it all the time. There's a dozen churches in this area that have become liberal on the assumption that Jesus' words are not true, they're not commands, they're advice. That's all. It's a lie. They're not advice. They are commands. But that's what we want to do. Because it threatens our identity. I am my own. And if he is Lord, then I am not my own. That's one issue. The second thing we want to do is we want to change him from being the only one to being an option. So we don't like this idea that Jesus saves us and he's the only way. Oprah, I remember years ago, Oprah saying to some pastor she was interviewing, but how could Jesus be the only way? What about these other religions? And I remember thinking, gosh, that's a dumb statement. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be so harsh. But it was. Because, and, and you know where we get this idea of tolerance today? And listen, I'm all for tolerance, but we've learned the definition of tolerance from the wrong people. And we've learned it generally, most people when they think of tolerance and how to approach religion and Jesus' exclusivity, the claims of exclusivity, we get an idea that's very similar to a comedian named George Carlin. A certain generation will know George. And he said, religion is like a pair of shoes. Find one that fits you, but don't make me wear your shoes. And this is very common. We think of tolerance being this idea of everybody can believe what they want. There's no judgment. That's fine. Just don't try to tell me. Don't force me to believe it. Don't, ask, don't try to evangelize me. Now, this idea of tolerance breaks down in two, well, lots of areas, but in two. Okay? One is it contradicts itself, and two, it ends in despair. Let me explain very quickly the two. First, the contradiction I've talked about before. Tolerance is intolerant the way we see it today. Because even lovely George Collin, who generally is pretty funny, but no friend of the church, is, is, is a fool philosophically. This is why. The moment he says to me, listen, believe whatever you want. Anybody has, but just don't force me what to believe. That's the way it should be. Don't force me to think the way you think. He is contradicting himself. Because in that moment, what he is saying is, believe whatever you want, but really believe me. You shouldn't evangelize. That's a worldview. He is trying to convert me to his view to not evangelize. So tolerance in this definition, the world's definition, is intolerant. Let me use an example. When I was in Calgary pastoring, our church grew too big for the space we were in, so I was looking for another rental space. And I went to a church that was a liberal church, was dying, a big, beautiful building in the downtown. And I said, can I come see it? I'd like to rent it. They said, yes. When I showed up with one of my kids, I don't remember, I took somebody with me, um, they said, you know what, we're not going to rent to you after all. I said, oh, how come? They said, well, we looked at your website, and you're not an affirming church. And I said, what do you mean? They said, you don't affirm certain views about sexuality, etc. You're, you're conservative, so, so we're not going to work with you. I said, oh, you guys are an affirming church? They said, yes. I said, you're not affirming me. It's amazing. You're tolerant of everybody, but those you disagree with. So are you tolerant, or are you just like the rest of us? 
Come on. Our view of tolerance is wrong. Tolerance isn't accepting and assuming everybody is the same. Tolerance is saying, what do my views tell me about how to treat you when you disagree with me? That's tolerance. Christianity offers a way of interacting with people saying, believe what you want. I'm not going to force you, but I will tell you and warn you everywhere I can. Because if you're riding off a cliff, you know, like the coyote and roadrunner, and I know there's a cliff, I am not kind to you if I let you run off. I'm not kind. I'm a jerk. I must warn you. You don't have to listen. You can run right off. But I'm, it's my job. So it's a contradiction. But more tragically, our view of tolerance leads to despair. And we don't, want to, we don't want to lose it, right? I understand this identity that we're tolerant to everybody. It sounds so, it's everywhere in the culture. If you believe it, please don't. This is why. There's a woman named Dorothy Sayers. Well, she's dead now. But she was the first woman to, I believe, go to, graduate, and then teach at Oxford. Brilliant woman, wrote lots of stories, lots of things. And listen to what she says. In the world, it is called tolerance. But in hell, it's called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. Let me explain because it's a mouthful. You can leave it up there for a bit. What she's saying is this. Tolerance, the way we understand it, is actually despair because you assume that our view of tolerance today is because we care much about religious freedom and freedoms of all kinds. And what Sayers is rightly saying is, no, it doesn't show a great concern, but a lack of concern. It means you don't care about truth at all. All you want is to, what, not have a fight? And eventually, this sort of, in fact, Aristotle, Greek philosopher, gets this right, and he did it thousands of years before Sayers, and he says, tolerance and apathy are the last virtues of a dying society. Thousands of years ago. You know what he means? The moment we as a people stop caring about what is true, and we say, pick your identity. It doesn't matter genitalia. doesn't matter biology. doesn't matter. Truth is not any more important. What matters is your feelings. When that happens, says Aristotle, long before us, we're in trouble because we no longer care about the truth. See, i got to be honest. I'll put my cards on the table. I don't care in my human sinfulness what people do with their private lives. That's their business. But my bigger concern is not so much people can live this world as they want. My concern is what is truth. And if we sacrifice what is truth, there's a problem. And we've made identities based on lies in all of these areas. Every one of them. And so the gospel comes and threatens us because he says there's one God. He is holy and he is rigid. He will not abide sin. Cannot abide sin. And there's one way to him. And we don't like that. We think it's too rigid. But then he shows he's not just rigid, but he's more tolerant than any other religious claim. Because in every other religion, it's told, you will get everything you want, but first you better behave. You better pray X amount of times. You better sacrifice X amount. You better be cleverer than the other person and engage and gain enlightenment. You have to earn your way before you are saved. Christianity alone says, to the, and it's, isn't it amazing? People will say, Christianity is too hard, too rigid. And then if I say, all you must do, sinner, it doesn't matter if you're mentally disabled, it doesn't matter if you're a criminal, if you're a saint, child, old, any gender, anything. The moment, all you have to do is believe that Christ died on your behalf. They say, it's too easy. Too hard or too easy, which is it? Both. And so, it's an incredible threat to your identity. Because when the gospel comes, he says plainly that you are not your own. You owe somebody something. That's God. You owe him. 
You're, you can't just choose. And there is a specific way to get right with him, and it's Christ. And that's a threat. So there's a threat to our positions, a threat to our identity, and lastly, a threat to our world. In verse 11, uh, Peter isn't new here. He's picking up on Jesus because we know he heard Jesus because Gospels tell us. Jesus uh, refers to himself, and then Peter does it now, as the cornerstone. And he's quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. And when he does this, he does something pretty interesting. First, he says, the way the Jews understood and still understand this verse is like this. The cornerstone that the builders have rejected, that is the stone that the builders have rejected, which have now become the cornerstone in Israel today, that stone is Israel. Israel have been rejected by the world, yet God has made it the cornerstone. Peter and Jesus, the, the appalling thing they did was they came and said, no, Jesus is the cornerstone because he is the true Israel. He is, it's, it's Jesus. And there's something really insulting here that Peter's doing. When he says Jesus is the cornerstone, he is now saying, and you, Israel, are the builders. And remember, the old view said the world that doesn't believe in God, that's the builders who have rejected God and Israel. But now Peter's saying, no, Israel has rejected the Messiah. You are to blame. You're the builders. And what you have built is not God-honoring, and there's judgment for it. And when he uses this idea of a cornerstone, now we don't use cornerstones in the same way. I had to Google this because I don't build, you know me. I, didn't build, I don't even build with Lego. Um, but cornerstones, historically, were bigger stones, larger. They were put at the corners of buildings. Surprise, surprise. So most buildings had at least four at the corners. And the stones were really large, and they were meant to, two things at least. One, support the weight of two walls converging. So that'd be strong. But the more important thing I noticed in reading this week, which I never would have thought of, um, is when the stone was laid, it determined the direction of the building. Because it has to be aligned to the stone. Pretty simple. And so what Peter is saying here, and what the psalmist is saying, what Jesus was saying is, you have built a world on the wrong stone. And you know why that's offensive? Because it's like me coming to any one of you and saying, your entire life before Christ is wrong. All of it. Children, all of it. It doesn't mean you have to regret having children, but you've raised them. You've not seen them as a blessing. You've not raised them to honor me. Everything you've done hitherto is built wrongly, on the wrong foundations, the wrong cornerstone. You've made something else the cornerstone. And that's quite offensive, <laughs> quite offensive. And so, well, and think about this now. Think about the church, because I don't want to push just out to the world, because the world builds poorly, but they don't know Christ. My concerns are often in the church how poorly we build. When we allow, the world builds on wrong foundations, but when the church builds on wrong foundations, I find the biggest thing is we allow the world to dictate our agenda. We preach sermons based on the issues the media are talking about, because they're talking about reconciliation with indigenous populations. That should become my focus. No, my focus is the gospel. And the word, every single time. And we know there's a problem here because when you start to build your church with the intent of satisfying agendas that are not the gospel, you become a church that looks very good to the world. You're doing all the right things. You have reconciliation days, which are not necessarily wrong. But the motive becomes to appease another God rather than this God, the God of the Bible. And so the building is wrong. And it threatens us because it says, really, we have to scrap the whole thing? Have you ever done, uh, well, think of Ikea furniture. I'm terrible with it. Even with, it's so easy, isn't it? Ikea furniture is supposed to be made for dummies. Not dummy enough, because I, I screw it up. You know how disheartening it is to have the whole thing built and find at the very end it's backwards? 
and then you have to undo the whole thing. You know what I do right away? Is there a way I don't have to do that? Is there a way I can just turn it around, you know, put it in a corner? Is there, can I just do half of it? Redo it? Because the last thing you want to think of is the entire thing was wrong and you have to redo it all. It's disheartening. And that's just the shelf. <laughs> Imagine now the world. Imagine the world where we say, capitalism, it's the best we can do, but it's broken. How do we fix it? Oh my goodness. How? I don't know. But it's mind-boggling. And so, what do we do here? Let me use this example. Why do we do it? Why do we build this way? Why do we build on something that's not Christ? And uh, what came to mind is, is this C.S. Lewis book called The Great Divorce. It's a story. He tells it very clearly that it is not truth. It's just meant to be a story, an example. And he's walking through hell with a guide, kind of like in Dante's Inferno. And as he's walking through, he comes to a guy and he's talking. And he's, they're discussing this question about why hell, first of all, is always dark. Hell, in his perception, is always not dark, dark, but not light. It's like that in-between. You can't tell if it's dusk or dawn. It's always threatening to either become morning or growing darker. And he says, so why is it that you build, why do they build cities in hell? What's, why are these people who are here building cities? And here is the discussion that comes. Oh, he says, sorry, he says safety. The man says, they build it for safety in numbers. And this is the response. Well, safety from what? I began, but my companion nudged me to be silent. I changed my question. But look here, said I, if they can get everything just by imagining it, why would they want any real things, as you call them? Eh? Oh, well, they'd like houses that really kept out the rain. Their present houses don't? Well, of course not. How could they? Well, what the devil is the use in building them? Then, and the intelligent man put his head closer to mine. Safety again, he muttered. At least the feeling of safety. It's all right now, but later on, you understand. What? said I, almost involuntarily sinking my own voice to a whisper. He articulated noiselessly as if expecting that I understood lip-reading. I put my ear close to his mouth. Speak up, I said. It will be dark presently, he mouthed. You mean the evening is really going to turn into night after, in the end? He nodded. What's that got to do with it, said I. Well, no one wants to be out of doors when that happens. Now, what he is saying is this. Here they are in hell. They're building houses, thinking. All they know is the darkness is coming. They know there's a threat. And they don't know how to defend against it. So they're building these houses, but the houses are not enough. They literally, rain falls right through them because they, they're building wrong. And what Lewis is hinting at here, what I'm hinting at, not hinting, I'm saying directly, is we are like those people. We build lives that we intend to shield us from God, constantly. I have big bank account, and the reason I want that is because then if, if, if God lets me down, I can still live. If my health disappears, at least I've got the money to go somewhere to get it fixed. If my family leaves me, at least I have this. We're always building insurance policies that will hold us or keep us from completely trusting in God. And the reason is we are still Adam and Eve. We're still covering ourselves with leaves and skins to try to avoid a holy God constantly. And we know he's coming. We know he's going to come looking for us. And we hope that our clothes and our opinions and our good works will save us. I've been a good person. That's, let's hope that's enough. And so what is the hope? Let me very, really close here. What's the hope? If God is holy and we push him away as much as we can, what is the hope for us? If he is literally perfect and to be in his presence means death and destruction, how can we live in his presence if our good works, we can't earn it? And the answer, because we're close to Christmas, comes in my favorite, maybe my favorite song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Charles Wesley. Best theology, by the way, of any song ever written. I say that 
unabashedly. And in it, listen to what he says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God understood and understands that you cannot stand before the naked holiness of God, but you cannot build anything that will veil you from him because your homes, your career, none of it will work. Your identity, call yourself what you want. It's not going to fail you. So what God does at Christmas is he comes and says, I will come because you can't hide from me. I will hide myself from you. I'll veil myself in flesh so that you can look on me and not die. And because God does this, this is all it makes God all at once our greatest threat and our greatest hope. We just sang about taking refuge, and I say it often because it's true. An old Old Testament scholar said it. There's no refuge from God, only in God. And so here we are trying to build things to try to keep ourselves away from him. And he's saying there's none. There's no refuge away. But just by grace, he has said, you can take refuge in me. So when he comes to us, he will tear down everything we build to distance ourselves from him. But then he will draw us so near to him that we will not only get the reward he deserved because he took the punishment we deserved, but he will then make you like him. It's the gospel. And so we see the Pharisees, we see these leaders trying to avoid him. Everything we can, let's avoid him. And yet we're on a crash course. You cannot avoid him. It will be dark presently. It will be dark. Run to the gospel. Run to Christ. Run to the gospel. The only hope, the only refuge you have. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for Peter and John. Boy, it's hard enough, Lord, for us to post something about Christmas without feeling the the backlash we get, let alone to stand in the midst of the temple and declare these truths to men who you know have life, power over life and death uh, over you to an extent. And um, we thank you for the boldness and the, and the truth and the courage you put in these men. Pray for that for us as well. Not that we are in the same times necessarily, but Lord, um, the church has always been asked to compromise. We're always being asked to, to veil ourselves somehow, to, to, to soften the gospel. Lord, help us to not do it. Lord, help us to not keep up, to be, just help us be open and vulnerable with you. Let everyone, if it's, a, if it's us men, Lord, let's throw away this worldly idea that the strong, silent type, the Gary Cooper, that's not the gospel. Lord, our model for manhood is you. It's Christ who could all at once weep with those who are weeping and turn over tables. Father, help that to be. And for, for women as well, Lord, uh, pray for the same thing. You are not second-class citizens. You are loved and holy in God. And Father, we pray that um, we would all be vulnerable, that we would open up and be honest with you and with one another and just say, this is what we do. This is our lives. And we put on facades when we came here. Some of us men tuck in our, we suck in our stomachs, right? Uh, Maybe we put on makeup to hold back the aging process. Lord, we are who we are. Father, let us be open. Let us be vulnerable with you. Let us accept who we are in you. Father, we love you. We ask this all in your son's mighty and great name. Amen.